like to talk tonight about qualities of of the great being or greatness and simple acts of greatness, developing this greatness within with metta compassion and our mindfulness practice and images of the complete being and images of those who are on their way to being a complete being. The Buddha gave us the map of the, the three trainings, virtue, purified awareness, wisdom, that constitute the Eightfold Path. As this holy Eightfold Path becomes integrated into our mind stream, into our personality stream, we have what the early suttas called attributes of the Mahatta. Mahatta comes from the combination of two words, maha, great, and atta, meaning oneself or being, therefore great being. And the suttas went on to describe such a mahatta as someone whose uh, insights have not distinguished any self, but only attributes that color or tarnish the attributes of a great being. And therefore, such a mind-heart is expansive and diamond-like in its clarity, in its radiance. The two, our two practices, our two primary practices of insight and metta forge the man or woman of, of nothing. It is the wisdom wherein such a man or woman does not identify with anything as I. And the sense of oneself is therefore not supported by any clinging to conditioned phenomena. And secondly, that the quality of love creates a, a boundaryless heart or mind, because the, the barriers that limit one's sense of being are broken. And the unlimited or immeasurable sense of oneself expands with this radiance of compassion and unconditional love. The same early sutta describes the great being as being developed in bodily actions, developed in virtue, developed in, in mind or heart, developed in wisdom. And that such a one dwells or abides in a sense of the measureless, of no limits. What transforms oneself from being undeveloped or a self-experience of being uh, insignificant into this mahatta, into this great being. A practice of metta and mindfulness, of growing this mind beyond the boundaries of limitation, the, the barriers 
wherein the unconditional love for oneself and all beings uh, are limited, melting those barriers, and therefore growing this quality of, of the enlarged being, enlarged mind. And the mindfulness practice where in every purified moment of present time awareness, the mind is fairly unwavering in the face of what's attractive or repelling. Is that the habit of grasping or pushing away is, is lessened, weakened, fades more into the background. It's said that as this mahatta nature comes out in the practitioner, that the interesting, inter- interesting response to the karmic fruitions of our lives, it is certain unskillful actions that are not of great magnitude are said to have the effect like a grain of salt would have if we put it in a great river, like the Ganges River. Whereas one whose uh, sense of self is quite diminished and who's, who doesn't practice, who doesn't bring out this greatness of being within, uh, the effects even of small unskillful acts may be experienced like uh, even a grain of salt in a glass of water. The actions from one's motivation out of this greatness, out of the mind where the barriers begin to melt, the sense of connection or oneness from the metta uh, expands our relationship with life. And where the mindfulness insight practice begin to uh, move beyond clinging to all of our experience, whether we like it or dislike it. The fruition of acts of such greatness are like when we throw a stone into a pond and the rippling effects grow out of that in all directions. The results being very mysterious, but immensely positive. 25 years ago, such a, a single act took place that has resulted in a, a massive a massive transformation of a culture. At that time, uh, a group of visionaries built a double-haul sailing canoe in Hawaii and undertook the first voyage in 600 years of non-instrument navigation of these traditional Polynesian double-hull sailing canoe. It was meant to be a single app. In fact, it was coordinated with the continental U.S. um, bicentennial celebrations. But because of the power of the vision and what it it, uh, awakened in the hearts and minds of the Polynesian nation, was so unexpected and so mysterious that it, it spawned it spawned something that is still in full force. When when the Hokalea, the name of the of the sailing vessel, reached its destination of Tahiti, 
uh, after weeks of sailing from, from Hawaii, half the Tahitian nation was in the harbor waiting. It arrived from all directions, all islands, to greet these uh, men and women on the Hokulea. An epic journey that uh, began the restoration of the entire seafaring culture of Polynesia and a lost identity, you know, a lost healthy pride. So later, almost uh, 20 years later, another canoe was conceived in the minds of these voyagers who actually then, many of them, made this their life, made this their, their path of life, their spiritual path. They conceived of making a canoe with all natural materials that they would call the, the Hawaiiloa. And they went in search of indigenous natural materials, particularly the koa tree throughout the islands, particularly in the big island of Hawaii. But they found none that were strong enough, healthy enough, old enough, or that remained from years of, of um, clear-cutting them, selling them off, centuries. And so they, they sought a solution. And by invitation, they went to a Native American culture on the shores of Alaska, to a small village, a village headman there named uh, Judson. And they inquired about the, their old growth woods, said what their needs were, what their vision was. And they were very well received by Judson, the elder of the village. Uh, and a group of these people from Hawaii, including a friend of mine, Nainoa, Nainoa Thompson, inquired about the cost of such a, a tree that would build two hulls for their, uh, for their mission. And Judson said, well, it, it, uh, it would be a gift. And still Nainoa, you know, thinking that well, I must know what the cost is. There must be some reciprocity. And Judson said, never ask how much it would cost. And never bring gifts back once given. And so I know and the others uh, thought and spoke and considered, but they said no. They couldn't receive such a magnanimous gift. And they went home. They sought the advice of the kupuna, the elders of, of Hawaii. And the elders said, essentially, that the health of a culture is dependent on the health of the culture's environment. That was their message. They took that teaching and put it into action. And, and they went to the Big Island, found an area of land, and they planted 11,000 koa trees. This is uh, perhaps in the early 90s, and they're now growing quite big. And after they did this action of planting, of restoration of the native trees that uh, were the central source of centuries of their uh, sailing over 2,000 years in Hawaii, they returned to Judson's village in Alaska 
and said, we'll accept your gift of the tree. So they went out and they found a tree that was 418 years old, that was 300 feet tall, that weighed 100,000 tons and was eight feet in diameter. And with deep and solemn ceremony and ritual, as they went about uh, the, cut, the ceremony of, of cutting it down, bringing it back uh, to Honolulu, and uh, storing it in the canoe house, the halal. And then a, a very unique process of community building, even stronger than the previous one, around the Hokalea, uh, was created in, in the uh, shaping and the mastery of building this Ho'iloa canoe, second canoe. Became something special, not only in terms of the canoe that was made of these natural materials, uh, but the community that was built around it. And not only the local community, because as you, as you just learned, the core part of the canoe came from another culture. So in 1995, after the canoe had been completed uh, in test uh, voyages, they sailed up the coast, the west coast of the United States, sailed up into Judson's village in Alaska to show their gratitude to these incredibly generous Alaskan natives. They came into Judson's village and uh, were greeted again with unconditional kindness, generosity. In fact, they sat in a in a rustic old hut, and <clears throat> and the villagers spread out a blanket. A young village girl came in with a fist full of hundred-dollar bills. This is a poor village, and spread that on the blanket, offering to this Hawaiian crew of women and men, sailors. And once again, Nainoa, the spokesman and chief navigator, you know, was stunned by the generosity and in initially unable to receive that gift from this poor village. Judson, reading his mind, said, My dear young man, our people measure wealth by their generosity, not by how much they have. This is how we've kept a sustainable forest for 12,000 years and how you may restore your own culture of 2,000 years. Well, through, through that power of sharing, through that power of, of metta and the insights into how to care a culture by caring for the environment and how to share one's wealth by generosity um, has gone a long ways in bringing forth long suppressed sense of greatness in a culture and it's been shared in many ways. <coughs> the, our practice of metta is very much like the the uh, Hawaiian practice of aloha, 
it also has as its as its core nature it's unconditional love it it's not it doesn't need the recipient of one's care or gift or kindness uh, to respond in any way to be anything different than what they already are in one of the oldest buddhist texts called the ittivuddaka metta is described as a mind release or heart release that surpasses all other actions that are productive of goodness and well-being that it shines forth like the moon's radiance which dims the entire cosmos the stars when it comes when the moon rises comes out of a cloud for one who mindfully develops this boundless metta it's said in this itivutika uh, seeing the release in the heart of clinging of grasping and seeing the falling away of the barriers to unconditional love seeing them wear away with one's patient and persistent effort even for a moment just a single moment it's said that many people live by the generosity of others and that the only authentic way of repayment is to consider them even for the flash of a moment with unconditional love one's benefactor compassionate mind toward all living beings brings immense goodness to oneself and to the, the benefactor who has shared in their generosity all other offerings cannot compare to the mind well cultivated in thoughts of loving kindness so when we practice for example moving from one category to an, to the next you know, the aim generally is to start with oneself the buddhist taught that that's where we initially connect with our core of goodness within gave an example of that in fact a queen at the time queen malika was an ardent practitioner of dhamma with the buddha and one day she had been practicing the brahma viharas all day long and her husband the king came home and she was radiant glowing and he wanted to rub up against some of that glow so he said to her my queen whom do you love the most expecting her to say well you my dear but she didn't she said myself do i love first and foremost and so there was a little maritable marital squabble there that evening and they decided the next morning that they would go and discuss this with the buddha which they did the buddha heard the story and he said queen malika you are correct and in his famous aphorism he said uh, through my mind i have traveled the universe nor have i found any 
who is more precious than themselves. Likewise, are all others to themselves most precious. She or he who loves themselves unconditionally uh, could never harm another. So with that affirmation, that connecting first and foremost with one's own sense of preciousness, goodness, core goodness, becomes the foundation for developing and moving through all the categories. So once we touch that with oneself, the next easiest category, which may be the benefactor, mentor, and then the dear friend, neutral persons, difficult persons, and on to all beings. The aim there is that gradual filling of the space that we, where we direct the love. And when it fills like a pond, it will naturally cataract over into the next space. And when that fills, that'll cataract, uh, cataract over into the next space or category of being. And in this way, the barriers are slowly uh, broken until it becomes the full-seated Brahma-vihara, divine abiding, where the heart is just naturally radiant in all directions to all beings indiscriminately. <clears throat> as, a, as a practice on our path of liberation, Metta has a great power, a great restorative power, to go quite deep in healing and lifting out that sense of core goodness that may have long been lost, forgotten, buried. Quite some years ago, the student who was here doing, doing intensive metta practice it was clear that it was the right time for him to do it, but it was a great struggle. Really hard, he could not do himself. He could not begin with himself. So he began with the benefactor. It took some time to establish that, uh, that power of the teacher-student relationship where it becomes a, a container of great safety and trust. And at a certain point, this yogi said that within that container, within that sacred space, he had never trusted anyone so much in his entire life. At a certain point, he began to realize that there was a lot of pain when he tried to do the metta for himself. He just kept doing the benefactor. Finally, after some month or six weeks or so, all of a sudden one day, he was just being really persistent. His mind was still getting concentrated. And all the, all the, um, the growth of the metta and the development of the samadhi was taking place. Even though he still couldn't do himself. At a certain point, he said that he was doing the benefactor, very concentrated, and he saw his own face in the face of the benefactor. And then things just began to change. And the benefactor fell away. And very soon it was just all beings that were coming up. And his 
energy was just radiating and radiating and radiating. He began to weep as well in the process, periods of deep, soulful weeping. And there's a realization that he thought long ago, as a child, he had killed that sense of core goodness in trying to protect it due to the environment and the conditioning that he grew up in. In trying to preserve and protect that innate sense of worthiness or goodness, he had so suppressed it or so protected it that he thought he had destroyed it. That realization uh, turned into feeling so deeply connected with that, that part of himself. And as he was weeping, he kept saying to himself, I didn't die, I didn't die, I didn't die. Like Judson's gift, our, our practice, practices of metta, mindfulness, begin to establish that, that groundedness in this mahatta, this sense of greatness within, these qualities of greatness, where we find and connect again with that core of goodness, core being of preciousness, and then with that worthiness and that's inspiring and informing our practice, we find our, our rhythm, our cadence. You know, and the practice forms really conform to our own need rather than the sense of ourselves needing to conform to any particular rigid practice form. And it becomes quite responsive the, the tools of practice and the response of practice, the fruits of it within. As individuals, we all lose touch in one way or another with that, that core of goodness or worthiness. Metta, mindfulness, are, are like planting those 11,000 koa trees. We're put back in a situation where we can grow the garden grow those beautiful qualities within. The mindfulness practice works in a similar ways, but, but also unique in the sense that its power is in its preconceptual nature. In, in that way, it goes like the metta, it can go through very deep layers. Layers all the way back to where we also long felt we lost or forgot some core part of ourselves are, are deeper, older, like lifetimes, those kinds of layers. No other quality but a, a pre-conceptual or pre-symbolic awareness could possibly do that. It would just sort of be meddling with thoughts, with psychology. You know, with, with conceptual reflection. So the, the, the purity, the pre-verbal awareness is what takes it also very deep. It also tends to draw together like a magnet 
other associated skillful states. Virya, courageous energy. Samadhi, the one-pointedness of mind from distraction to cohesion. Faith, confidence. Even reverence and awe for, for the Dhamma and for life as it is. Joy and happiness. In fact, every moment of pure mindfulness draws out the four Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. Mindfulness tends to, as it gets stronger and more sustained, it tends to draw out the fruits of past good actions and inhibit the fruits of past unskillful actions. You know, so quite often people coming into the Dharma and these attributes of the Mahatta, the great being, growing stronger, you know, creates a kind of a mindful aura around them that acts not only as a uh, protection, not only as a smooth way to navigate through life's changes, vicissitudes, but also draws out powerful experience, drawing people to them you know, who are good people, circumstances that are favorable, uh, dhamma opportunities, and opportunities for practice, these are the kind of positive results of past skillful actions that come about. And it tends to inhibit a lot of results that are painful and unpleasant. Entangling. At the same time, we all know, perhaps have experienced, that taking this spiritual path often invites times of a great difficulty, struggle, pain. But the sustained mindfulness practice also creates that capacity to hold it, the patience, the courage to go through the difficulty so that it does not itself become reactive. That is, if we react to difficulty with aversion or attachment, then that's going to create more of the same kind of karma. Whereas if we hold it in a way that we're just working through a lot of purification here and can accept, navigate through the pain and difficulty, we're not creating new karma. The mind is equanimous. And the, the actions of a mindful equanimity are such that they do not create new karma. We stay anchored and essentially connected, essentially within ourselves, no matter what's happening. Our personalities are, are shaped by vast forces over vast periods of time. In similar ways to uh, wild wind that's shaping a ridge of trees along a mountaintop or a cliff's edge. 
take a certain personality when wind-whipped over many years. In the same way, how we've been living our lives over decades, over lifetimes, that has a, takes a certain, uh, our, our personalities take a certain form accordingly. And some are really strong, deep-rooted tendencies. And when we practice, you know, the favorable ones get stronger and the, the um, more unhealthy tendencies, they're more illuminated and we see, we see the difficulty, the pain of them in our mind. But we begin to understand that they're, they're compounds, they're composites, they're causes and conditions that come together. They're not self. And these, the, these eightfold path factors that integrate into our personality and enlarge our capacity to be with our experience help ever so carefully reshape the areas of our personality that are hindering and to grow the areas that, are, that increase our spiritual growth. Remembering that it's, it's not even particularly some of our habits, but rather the motivation behind them that are most inhibiting. There's a story of a Sri Lankan arhant who, before he was an arhant, he had this <coughs> uh, arrogant habit, motivated out of aversion, of calling just about everyone who ever came around him uh, word that meant stupid fool. So, and then even as he was a monk, his attendants or anyone who he felt superior to, which was just about everyone, was a stupid fool. He practiced hard, became enlightened, fully enlightened, free of all greed, hatred, and delusion. But it was said that for 500 lifetimes he had called everyone a stupid fool. So he continued to call people a stupid fool, but it was no longer born of the motivation of aversion or superiority of arrogance. Keep that in mind. <laughs> their habits. When we work with feelings, the second foundation of mindfulness, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings, you see very clearly at times, at moments, great awareness, how feelings, and there's no mindfulness, how feelings condition cravings in the mind. It's, the, it's a, a crucial link in the chain of dependent origination that keeps one locked on the wheel of suffering. You see, when we're not mindful, pleasant feelings, a pleasant sight or sound, sensation, thought, tends to condition clinging and attachment. Unpleasant feelings, sounds, sights, condition, aversion, ill will, avoidance. Neutral feelings, when we're not mindful, condition the root of delusion, ignorance, not seeing clearly. When we bring a sustained awareness to feelings in the moment, we sever the link of feelings conditioning craving. Instead, feelings are seen 
as the nature of experience. They're seen to appear and disappear. And we start reconditioning pleasant feeling, conditioning attachment, unpleasant feeling, conditioning aversion. And the result is feelings now condition awareness and wisdom. And so it can be all the more with pleasant experience, far more than the limiting ability to be with experience when we're attached to it, and far more than the agonizing response of aversion to the unpleasant when we can't accept that. With mindfulness, you just start to increase that breadth of mind that can hold the experience of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The example of the perfection of the path of a great being, the path of a mahatta, is the, the term tathagata. Often we hear that reserved for a Buddha, but it's really for any liberated being. Tathagata means one thus gone. A more uh, poetic definition one who has become authentic, one draw out the core qualities of goodness. The Tagara is described as one deep and immeasurable, hard to fathom, as is the great ocean. And one who cannot be uh, understood by any particular aspect of their personality because they no longer see their personality as something to be clung to, there's no, um, there's no karmic knot there that might define their personality. They are a man or a woman, therefore of nothing. And they see their attributes, their personality, as just empty phenomena rolling along. And one lets go of everything and the sense of identity shrinks to nothing. That the mind-heart grows to boundlessness. This is the nature of a Tathagata. In the text they say, by not grasping to any experience, by either views or preferences, they come beyond Mara beyond the forces of Mara. In the Sutta Napata, it said, for whatever, they, whatever one grasped at in the world, by just that, Mara follows them. So wherever, wherever we find ourselves attached or afraid, that's the window where Mara arises. Whereas, Mara cannot see a person who regards the world as empty a self. Mara cannot find the Tagada, one whose mind has become freed. 
no trace. There's no scent in the personality factors because there's no more clinging. So even even on our uh, on our path of insight, it gets very clear at times that the self idea. Uh, begins to wither away in moments of the immeasurable metta and in moments of deep mindfulness, that, that the concept of self really doesn't apply to anything in our experience. You know, there's, there's just no connection between the idea or concept of self and our actual experience in the moment of unconditional love and compassion are the immeasurable nature of mind when attachments fall away. The Buddhist teachings have made it clear that not-self is not to become a view. You don't take up the view there is no self. Rather, it's a very direct experience. It's the idea of self is just put to rest in those moments where there's only the phenomena, the elements of body, and the stream of mind. There's no third process, no third idea. Sabe, Dhamma, Anatta, all things, all Dhammas are empty of self. That insight, that realization, lays aside, at least for the time, the habit of mind that attaches the self-concept on experience. So what the what the what a mind that's even momentarily seen as it is, momentarily liberated by the weight of attachments and ignorance. Deeply relaxed, just seeing simple dhamma, seeing the nature of body, nature of mind. That's all, just as it is. There's a there's a um, monastery in Upper Burma called the uh, Mingun Monastery, and a previous Sayadaw there, the Mingun Sayadaw, the great teacher. One of the teachers for Mahasi Sayada of this tradition that we're practicing. In the in the temple, there are paintings around the the uh, entry to the temple. All around, you just get different paintings depicted the life of the Mingun Sayada uh, past decades. And one of the pictures in particular was intriguing to me. And I asked the Burmese monk who was with me to explain the, the writing beneath the picture uh, and give me an idea. What the picture was, was of um, Mingun Saira in the shade of a tree, laying back with his hands on his head, kind of in relaxed repose. And then there was a, his car was broken down in the middle of nowhere. And the, the hood was up and his uh, driver was his head was in there and trying to figure out what was going on. 
So the caption was, you know, that this had been broken down. It was broken down for all day. It might even have been a couple of days. They were just there, stuck, until someone went out and found them. But it didn't matter what was going on. That always one is mindful can be in this perfect, relaxed repose. So it was just a wonderful image, just so simple. Just there, watching, you know, the dukkha of the of the car, but feeling at ease with it. And actually it reminds me of uh, when Sayadaw Upandita was visiting last year in May. We took him over to see uh, the land on the Big Island. And it was a wonderful, wonderful, perfect full day on the land. And we came back in the evening to catch a 6.30 flight. Uh, and then there was a mechanical problem. So we had to wait. And we went from the line, went into the waiting lounge. And we waited. It was just going to take an hour. Uh, but two hours went by, and then a third. And finally, they called the flight. And we went out and got in line. And then they said, no, it's not fixed yet. We had to go back into the lounge. So we went back into the lounge. And as we went in, the side on, in the meantime, he had said nothing the whole time. We went back into the lounge for the second time, and he just said, Dutiampi, <laughs> for the second time. <laughs> and, then, and then we heard that they had to fly another plane from Honolulu to Kona. And so the plane came and landed. We thought we could get on that plane, but actually they just flew in apart. But so after a while, they called the flight, and we went out again. By this time, it was like 11 o'clock at night. And we stood in line for half an hour, and nothing was happening. So we went back to the lounge. And he said, Tatiampi, <laughs> for the third time. It was about midnight when we got off, flew back into Honolulu. Still the Sayadaw said nothing. And then when we got off the plane and we went to get in our cars and he was being taken up to uh, the Zendo where he was staying. He just looked up and he said, Samsara. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> Simple Dhamma. Relaxed. The Tathagata image is one of completeness, of fulfillment of the great being, of these qualities of the great being we're all developing, uh, the mahatta. There, there are many great being qualities in the world. And in when, when uh, we encounter them, we also feel, either within ourselves or within that being, uh, a certain magnus, magnetic aspect of goodness, of depth, of beauty, purity. In the Diganakaya, the Buddha gave a discourse on such a person, uh, saying that we should be around these beings as much as we can. He called it the true-hearted one. True-hearted one or good-hearted one. They have four attributes. They are one who helps, one who remains constant, one who advises, and one who shows affection. As one who helps, uh, they are beings 
by whom we feel cared by, looked after. They become a refuge for us whenever we're afraid. And they're very generous to us. Hesitate not at all in offering whatever we need. One, the one who remains constant, uh, and these attributes might be in different people, they might all be in the same person. The one who remains constant, this also is a true-hearted one. They are there for us whether conditions are happy, unhappy, whether there's gain or loss. And they, uh, we trust them with, uh, with our secrets, and, and they share theirs to us. And no matter what happens in our lives, they don't forsake the friendship. The third attribute of advising, they advise us away from harm and set us straight, set us toward uh, goodness, set us toward a path that will bring out our well-being and our liberation. The fourth attribute of showing affection This is expressed by uh, rejoicing in our, in our fortune, our good fortune, when good things happen, and commensurating when there's difficulty, when we have misfortune. In their ability to express appreciation, show their appreciation, protect our name, not disparage us. And in their fearlessness in showing their affection, allowing them to feel our, uh, to feel their love for us. These are the, the attributes of a true-hearted one. One who helps, one who remains constant, one who advises, one who shows affection. But I wanted to close by using this model of a true-hearted one, in a tribute to someone who uh, exhibited these true-hearted qualities. Uh, this is the person that uh, I went to the services for last week in Hawaii. His name, his name was uh, Vernon Gray. Vernon was a, a very prominent distinguished uh, surgeon that retired about 15 years ago and he found 15 acres of land uh, on the big island jungle and he and his wife created this extraordinary garden paradise built a house and have lived there happily on these 15 acres for the past 15 years. Um, and Vernon is one of those who, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, when there's a, a single act of generosity, it seems to just magnify, just grow, and have these enormous consequences. So we met Vernon uh, two and a half years ago when we found the land that we're in the process of purchasing for the Dharma Center in the Big Island. They live right at the top of the land. 
right at the gate, in fact. In fact, Vernon could be said to be, uh, have been the gatekeeper and the opener of the way. He, um, he had grown up on a farm, so as part of his retirement, he collected farm implements, uh, a D6 bulldozer and, a, and tractors. Uh, and it's how he, how he created his own little paradise. And then he expanded <laughs> onto the other land um, that he didn't even own. And all the more so when we engage in the process of buying it. We still don't own it, but he still he, he, uh, has cleared the roads, open roads, because, uh, because his dreams became so intertwined with ours. He, um, he recognized... He recognized goodness when he saw it and he felt that the vision of what we were doing and the people we brought by, and we probably brought 200 people by in the last two years. Uh, he recognized that. He said, he said once that I, I, uh, I don't know much about Buddhism, but I've never met a Buddhist I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> and once in Honolulu, he's staying at a hotel uh, while he's visiting the doctor in the hotels and Hawaii, you have not only a Gideon's Bible, but you have a, a, a little Buddhist text from Japan. So, so he read it, <laughs> and he announced the next time, he said, you know, by, by chapter 7, I was fully enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, really the opener of the way there. Um, his, friend, his, his way of tuning in to people, because he was a true-hearted one, was that he attracted people of all sort of strata. His best friend there was the um, mechanic for the bulldozer, Ben. And Ben and his brother David would come over three days a week uh, to the house there. They'd just eat Marianne's desserts and talk for a while, and they'd go into the TV room, turn the TV on, and they'd fall asleep. They'd do that you know, every other night or so. But there was just some power and beauty about how they were together. And I came to be very fond also of, of, of Vernon's friends. Uh, and I was talking to Ben one day when Vernon wasn't around. And I could see what Vernon saw in him, in fact. Uh, and he was a very deeply beautiful man himself. His father and grandparents all had been working on the plantations in the days of plantation life. He said, um, you know, he said this about Vernon, he said, you know, for a doctor, he's a pretty smart guy. <laughs> as, a, as a friend said to me yesterday, when someone dies, uh, the space isn't filled. It's just left open and empty. Um, but it, it, it sure drew a lot of people to his ceremony last week. There was a couple hundred people there, and more than half of them were just the longtime locals and the various ethnic communities there, Filipino and Portuguese and Hawaiian, Japanese, Chinese, which was such a tribute to, to his true true-heartedness and his good-heartedness. 
And if that wasn't enough, uh, the the amazing messages from the natural uh, world finished it off during the um, during the end ceremonies. It was being, we were being led in the traditional farewell song, Aloha Oi. And there were two rare endangered Hawaiian hawks called Io, just hovering, hovering right above, and a brilliant column rainbow just to the east. And then a light misty rain came down. The next morning, uh, we took with the family we went down the road that he kept clear about a mile from his place down to the ocean onto our land and from uh, the uh, grassy meadow lookout we threw some of the bouquets of flowers into the ocean and they we just sat down in silence and watched them and after about half an hour or so they floated out to the middle of the bay uh, around which our land shaped Hapu'u Bay. And by the time they got to the middle of the bay, uh, they were all quite still. And then out of the midst of the floating flowers came uh, the Honu, the Hawaiian turtle, right, <laughs> right in the midst of it. It was lovely. And, uh, and, um, uh, and then even the following day, Marianne took flowers down to our little beach and threw them in, and she was sitting on the rocks, and she wrote me, you know, why did all, all of you have seen all these great omens? I have seen nothing. But the flowers that she threw and floated out, and then a short while later, the pueo, Hawaiian owl, also rare, came and circled the flowers three times and went off. fitting tribute to a great being. Uh, and just as he would have it, because he certainly he didn't want, you know, he just wanted his ashes to grow something, to be thrown in the orchard. He was a being who, uh, like, uh, like Yeats, who he wanted his name to be written on water, as it was. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.